Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he himself might himself reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. For through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. And God, we humbly ask as we continue now in worship that you would help us to worship in spirit and truth as we open the truth of your word that your spirit has given to us. We just ask now help us by the aid and the assistance of your Holy Spirit in this hour to understand the intent and the thought and the reason behind why you recorded this portion of scripture and that it would have power and impact and just in a personal living way speak to us today. So prepare our hearts, Lord. Give us a heart and a desire to want to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church and bless your word as we study it now. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when there is disunity, whether that disunity be maybe in a marriage relationship, uh, maybe between uh, family in another capacity, between friendships, between the body of Christ, or maybe even on a national level in some capacity, whenever disunity begins to arise, what would be the greatest force to unify when disunity begins to take place. Now, certainly I'm sure people would present a lot of different ideas. I want to say up front that I don't think, first of all, that it's demonstration and demonstrating so strongly what you believe that if somehow you just get your point across, then you're going to just convince the other side and all of a sudden unity is going to come as a result of that. I don't think as well that it's negotiation. As much as I think communication is a good thing, and I think that's uh, certainly a, a, a part in the process, and I think communication is a healthy thing, uh, but if you have uh, one person who wants to communicate and the other person, quite frankly, that doesn't want to hear what the other one wants to say, communication can fall pretty flat on its face. I think ultimately the Bible teaches us, God who has all wisdom, that the greatest help, the greatest force for unity or unification would what we call as Christians salvation. That is what happens when a person or when people experience salvation in Jesus Christ. Because the Bible teaches us that when salvation happens in Jesus Christ, there is a supernatural unification that happens among relationships, whether people want the unification or even at first realize that unification has happened at all. And that's really what this passage in the Bible is addressing, the fact of not just our position individually in Christ in a relationship with God through him, but the fact that we also have a position collectively, collaboratively, that we have a unified position as children of God as the result of coming to Jesus Christ in this thing that the Bible calls the church. 
being in Christ, the spiritual family. Ephesians 2 is a chapter all about the salvation of God and the position we have in Christ, both individually at the front side of the chapter and then collectively as the body of Christ or individual Christians and what we call the church as he gets now to the latter half or second half of the chapter. Look with me in verse 13. Let's work our way through this. Paul speaking about this sort of collective unity that we share in Jesus says beginning in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now what Paul wants to address here as he's talking about these things, he wants us to see particularly as what we would call Gentile believers or Gentile Christians. And again, the word Gentile is basically a term that just means anyone of non-Jewish descent. Uh, in the Bible, there were the Jews, God's chosen people, a nation God set aside for himself, and any other people group, any other nation, nationality, ethnicity was considered Gentile. And the Ephesian church was predominantly a Gentile group of people there in Ephesus. And he wants those who were Ephesian believers to see, and you and I as well, predominantly a, a Gentile people, unless we do have those who are Jewish among us, and that's a wonderful thing as well. Uh, but predominantly, he wants those to see in Ephesus how they were once, the emphasis here, totally separated from God completely disconnected from God, but it was their relationship with Christ that was the only thing that has changed that. This is what he wants them to recognize and really important really for you and I to realize as well that spiritually, before we came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we were honestly very far off, very separated to the greatest degree and completely out of fellowship with God. The thing he's just said in verse 11 and 12 refer to the fact of how we were without Christ. It says we were without God. It says we were without hope. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we were actually enemies of God. It doesn't just say we weren't his uh, servants. The Bible says before we experienced salvation in Jesus that we were positionally considered God's enemies because of the sinfulness of our condition within. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that we were alienated from God relationally. Here's the picture I want you to envision in your mind. I want you to imagine, if you could, the most estranged relationship that would exist between two people or two people groups. Uh, I mean, this makes the issues between Republicans and Democrats of late seem like petty school ground stuff. I want you to picture the most estranged relationship possible where things are absolutely horrible. Such horrific things have happened, such hurts, such divisions that's caused such disconnection, hatred, animosity. I want you to envision that in your mind and then magnify that times about a thousand. And you're starting at that point to get about 10% of the way to what God says existed between him and his creation as the result of sin. The Bible teaches, though we often may not like to swallow it, the Bible teaches that relationship between us and God was not just strained. It was severed. It didn't exist now, I know that's a hard thing. People in their humanity, we don't like to hear that swallow. Everybody kind of wants to think they're somewhat, I mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, I'm not close to God, but I mean, 
out of relationship with God? Well, listen, the Bible teaches this very chapter, the beginning of it. It says that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, death is a difficult thing. One thing that is true about death, and this is what makes it so difficult, is when someone dies, you no longer can have relationship with them. Do you understand what I mean by that? We can have relationship with living people. We can talk to them. We, we can listen to them. We can spend time together. The thing that's so hard and painful about death, right, is because it is the end, the severing of relationship. Relationship cannot exist. You can't have a relationship with a person who is dead. And the Bible says spiritually we were dead in trespasses and sins. So we could not have a relationship with God. We, we might have read Bible verses. We might have even prayed prayers and tried to talk to God. And we might have even attended worship services. But biblically, not politically correct, biblically, the Bible says that we did not have relationship with God. That that doesn't exist. We're not born with that. We're born of Adam's seed. We're all born from the same great-great-grandfather, ultimately from Adam. And Adam lost spiritual life in the Garden of Eden. So there was none that he could pass on. Someone else from a source outside of ourselves has to give us spiritual life. That's what Jesus meant, as we've learned in John, when he talked about being born again. You have to have a birth spiritually where Jesus makes you come alive spiritually. And you begin life just like a baby begins life at a certain point to experience it. You have to have a beginning of your life spiritually. So we actually had no relationship with God and needed to be reconciled. And it requires Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross to bring us back into relationship with God and to bring us near because we were so disconnected and far off that's what he's saying in verse 13 that in christ now in that relationship you who were once far off he says has been brought near by the blood of christ the idea again this term in christ it's a spiritual term it, it envisions the idea of like in a marriage relationship that we're in christ relationally joined with him and therefore our life status changes in the same way that uh, my wife, when she married me, when we became unified as one in that relationship, uh, her status changed. Uh, I hope in a good way, but it changed. She has a different name now. She has a different identity. Uh, her life was radically transformed. She has a, she's a married woman now. She's no longer a single one. So in the same way, when we come to Jesus and we enter a relationship with him, our status changes. We're now in Christ. Something has transpired, whether we feel like it has or recognize it. The Bible says we're in Christ. God doesn't look at us as the way we once were in our sin he now sees us in Christ. So though we were great sinners and we still do fail in sin, we're now positionally, judicially in Christ. So when God looks upon us because of the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us and washes us, and because of the righteousness of Jesus, God's cleansed us and he's robed us, if you would, in Christ. And so when God looks upon us, he looks upon us in Jesus with that identity. In the same way my wife's identity has changed, she's now Mrs. Montemuro. In Christ, God looks at you as a Christian in Christ. He doesn't see you in your sin. He doesn't deal with you in that position. He deals with you in that relationship with Christ. And the cost that it was required for us to experience that, the Bible says here what was required was that we were brought near by the blood of Christ. 
That is the sinless, righteous life of Jesus lived out on our behalf that we couldn't live. And then that life offered sacrificially as a substitute for our sinful lives. It was that life of Christ and his shed blood that was the thing that took away what separated us from God, which we know as sin. The Bible says our sins is what separate us from God. And Jesus' blood is what has cleansed us. It satisfied the wrath of God against sin. And God lovingly did this by sending Jesus to initiate reconciliation with you and I. We were enemies, but God initiated reconciliation with his enemies. He brought us near. He brought us back through what he did in Jesus. Colossians 1 says, It pleased the Father that in him, that's Jesus, that all the fullness, that is the fullness of God, would dwell, and by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Again, 1 John 1 says, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin. No matter what you have done at any point in your life, if your faith and trust is in Christ, it doesn't just say that sin is covered. It says your sin is cleansed, eradicated, removed. See, that's hard for us to relate to because we sin against one another, hurt each other, anger each other, offend one another. And we even loosely throw around, yeah, I forgive you. But, but true forgiveness literally means I deal with you as if that never happened. I relate to you as if that never took place because that's how God relates to us in truth because he's cleansed it from us. We come back to, oh, Lord, again, I'm so sorry. And we, we, you know, our conscience still wrestles with guilt because we don't believe these things and just accept them by faith. They sound too good to be true. So we still wrestle with guilt. Oh, Lord, but that one thing I didn't. And God's going, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? That stain is removed. I didn't just cover it up and once in a while I peek at it again. It's removed. It's eradicated. It's completely cleansed from our lives. That's why we can, the beautiful term, be brought near. That's why you can be near to God. You can't come near a holy God in your sinful condition, nor can I. But through the blood of Christ and that cleansing and the righteousness that he gives to us, we can now come near. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 10, brethren, having boldness or confidence to enter the holiest, that's the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus Christ, a new and living way which he consecrated for us through that veil that is his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That is, we can draw near to God. Hey, this morning, do you feel distant from God? That's a word, feel. Feel. If you are in Jesus Christ, though you may feel distant from God, you can come as near to God as you want. He's never going to restrict you. You know, he, he doesn't have a, you know, a security detail or because he's too busy or you got to make a point. At any point in time, you can be as near and as close to God as you want to be. You can have as intimate as fellowship as you want to have as you come near because of the shed blood of Christ. Now, Paul wants the Ephesian believers, as he's talking about this to them, how they've been brought near from this you know, condition where they were so disconnected from God who were predominantly, again, a Gentile church, to reflect upon that former state and what Jesus has done for them. And how wonderful this is, how they were separated from God, restricted from relationship, but now they've been brought near just like the Jewish converts who had been able to brought near as well. 
But what he's going to begin to address in these verses ahead, and it's important to think about as we go into it, is how Gentiles, understand as well, non-Jews, were social outcasts to the people of Israel. In a very strong way, consider the Jewish history just briefly. God chose, beginning with Abraham, by a sovereign grace, this man to make a chosen nation the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And God selected Abraham, not because he was special. We just saw this past Wednesday night. Abraham was worshiping idols and pagan gods. It was God's divine grace and election. It wasn't something special about Abraham or the Jewish people. God made them special. They're special because God chose them. And that's God's prerogative. He's God. He can choose and make anybody special he wants. So God chose Abraham in that condition and then revealed himself as the one true and living God and that they would be the nation of people that God would uniquely work through his plans and purposes in history. And God gave, therefore, Abraham and the Jewish people his covenants and promises. It's to them that they receive the law and the sacrificial system and the priesthood and the understanding of the ways of God, the prophets, and many blessings and promises. The most important, of course, was the promise of the Savior, the Messiah, that the Messiah and Savior would come through the Jewish line. Jesus himself in John 4 said to a Gentile woman, salvation is of the Jews. That's who God gave it to first and who it came through. Now, they were intended to be a light to all nations to point the way to other nations. But unfortunately, where they erred is they started to become throughout history a little bit sort of, if you would, spiritually self-righteous as God's chosen people. And what began to develop, and particularly you see it in the time of Christ, is over time, many of the ancient Jews began to believe that they were the only people that God loved. And all of a sudden, this sort of superior mindset began to develop among the Jewish people where they began to think that other nationalities, anyone who was not a Jew, God didn't even love and want anything to do with. And so this sort of stigma and uh, discrimination, if you would, began to develop where they began to look down upon and despise Gentile people. And this culturally began to breed an atmosphere where many felt that God loved Israel, but he hated all other nations. In fact, historically, you can research and see their attitude toward the Gentile people was sort of like Jonah with the Ninevites. They believed that Gentiles should be judged, not forgiven. Uh, Jews held an attitude at that time where they believed that God had created the Gentiles uh, really to be fuels for the fire of hell. If you read some of the things that are written, these mindsets existed among them. And this incredible antagonism began to develop between Jew and Gentile. That's why you see that strain in the Bible. In fact, we know as well, Jewish women refused to help a non-Jewish woman give birth because to do so would be responsible to help bring a Gentile into the world. And that was horrible. As they would go into an area, if they would walk through a territory that was not a part of the land of Israel, this is why they would shake the dust off of their feet or their clothing because they didn't want to contaminate God's land with Gentile dust. If a young Jewish man, boy or girl, would marry a Gentile, the family would conduct a funeral. And the idea was because of the, the complete disregard, it was an utter rejection. They, a Jew would not enter a Gentile home, nor would a Jew allow a Gentile to enter this home. This is why you see these things in Scripture where you can read and tell there's this clear animosity that existed there. So there was this deep-rooted, uh, again, an animosity there were walls of discrimination between jews and gentile what we often refer to as things like prejudice 
or racism, these kind of things. This is what began to develop between these two people groups ethnically. Uh, there was this wall of division and a mutual hatred then for one another. Gentiles began to hate the Jews just as much because of these things. And these two people groups, you have to understand, culturally, they hated each other. There was deep-rooted animosity, then years and years because of a wall of segregation that went up between them. They would not relate to one another. They would not interact with each other. Uh, they treated each other as enemies with sort of, again, a, a racial or, or a, uh, you know, a, a, a fervor of just discrimination in their attitudes. And then God did something that blew everybody's mind. He started saving Gentiles. Oy vey. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Jesus comes and the early church begins to flourish. And even Jesus' own ministry, when his people rejected him, he began reaching out more predominantly to Gentile people. And now, guess what happened as he started saving Gentiles? Now, all of a sudden, in the same church, you have Jews and Gentiles who are now the family of God. People who hated each other, deeply rooted animosity and, again, racial and ethnic tension between them towards one another. And Paul wants to show how the work of Jesus didn't just reconcile people to God, it also reconciled people to one another. And this was a part of God's plan, even in sending Jesus Christ to settle issues that separated people. Look what he says, verse 14 through 16. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. Who's broken, or excuse me, who has made both one, broken down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So notice he's describing a new union now that came about through Christ between Jews and Gentiles in what we call the church, where Jews and Gentiles coexist, dwell together as the family of God in the same spiritual condition and what that involves. Again, you can tell by the language as we read through it there, the terms that are used to describe the natural conditions that did exist prior to this time. You read terms like there, verse 14, a wall of separation. That's pretty clear. A wall of separation. Two times we read the word enmity. That word means mutual hatred between two enemies. The Bible's telling us what existed, but yet verse 14 says what? That Jesus himself is our peace, Paul says. Notice he doesn't say that Jesus gives peace. No, he does. He doesn't even say Jesus is a peacemaker. He simply says that Jesus himself is our peace. It's in him that peace takes place. What he's alluding to here is simply this. Our relationship with Jesus gives us a new status and identity and it gives us the same status and identity no matter what our age is, no matter what the color of our skin is, no matter what our nationality is, no matter whether we're rich or poor, young or old, male or female, we are unified in Christ. And in the spirit, we're unified with other believers of all races, of all nationalities, of all backgrounds and statuses and so forth, whether we like it or not. You know, it's an old thing. You can pick your friends, but you're stuck with your family. That's true spiritually. 
And in Christ, we're joined with the same spiritual family. He says here that he has made both one. He did it. He made us one. We're to work to maintain unity. The Bible doesn't say acquire unity. The Bible says maintain unity. We're already unified whether we want to be or not. In Christ, as a part of the church, this is reality. Regaining peace between estranged relationships, here's what we need to remember, is not necessarily about a process. It's not a program. It's even not, forgive me Christian bookstores, with the five biblical principles to follow for better unity in your life. It's in a person. As two people, two people enter into relationship with Christ, unity transpires. As two people groups enter into relationship with Christ, that's where unity transpires. Because as one person pursues Christ and another person pursues Christ, or as one person gets right with Christ, another person gets right with Christ, as the result of both being in the same person, the two are now one. You know, a lot of times, well, what do we need to do? We're having such disunity. We're at, look, uh, we're trying to work. Work on your relationship with Christ. Because if you work on your relationship with Christ, the byproduct of that will automatically be unity. Because you'll be in the same person, seeking the same person. You'll find all of a sudden you share something bigger than your differences or your dislikes or your prejudices even because now all of a sudden you find we're on the same team. Imagine that. We're actually in the same family and on the same team. So as we come to Jesus personally, we find what we need for right relationships. He brings reconciliation. He draws people back together. He heals ruined relationships and men's wounds because it says here that he has broken down the middle wall of separation, probably alluding to that wall that did exist even in the temple in that day between the Jewish court and the Gentile court. The temple was broken into sections which were restrictive barriers. There was the court of the Gentiles then there was the court of the Jews. Then there also was what was, or excuse me, called the court of the women. Then the court of the Jews. Then there was the area where the priests were allowed, the temple itself, and even the Holy of Holies. And there was this very clear understanding between the court of the Israelites and the court of the Gentiles. There was literally a wall, a four-foot wall. In fact, inscribed there was a sign that said this. No Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That sounds like an encouraging church, doesn't it? You can worship in that sanctuary. If you come in here, you just may die. But God bless you. Thank you for visiting with us this morning. But this was what existed. This was the mindset. And even accepted as that was spiritual. That was okay. This was what they had developed. And what the Bible's saying here is that separation between those two groups that intermingle, Jesus broke down the middle wall of separation. Jesus took the barricade. In the same way Jesus took a barricade of sin between us and God away, he also took away everything that should exist that would separate any people despite their background because everyone now has equal standing before the same God. We all have the same access. Romans 10 says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord over all and rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Galatians says you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. As many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free. 
male nor female, you're all one in Christ. Listen, this morning, perhaps you have walls of separation in your life that you perhaps have put up toward certain people. Can I tell you, Jesus wants to, and Jesus has the power to, remove those barriers that you have built up as an individual. Listen, maybe it was your upbringing and what you were, you know, kind of had cultivated in your mindset because of what you were taught. Maybe it was experiences. Maybe you had bad experiences with a particular group of people or you've developed your own. I, I don't, it does not matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. Politically, racially, ethnically, whatever it may, those walls, the Bible says, the heart of God was to bring down those walls of separation, to eradicate those things. He says in verse 15, Jesus abolished those things in his flesh where there was once enmity, for then it was the law and the commandments. Jesus broke down these barriers. That's why he went to the woman of Samaria in John 4. What was he doing? He was breaking cultural barriers for the higher cause of love. He was crossing cultural boundaries purposely. And Jesus in his flesh also took all the pain and the punishment for all the sinful attitudes and all the wrong mindsets and perspectives and ways that people treat each other. Jesus abolished all that by saying, listen, all the horrible, sinful, evil things that humanity do to each other because of their walls of separation and the barriers and prejudice. And he says, listen, I'm going to abolish all that. I'll take the pain for all the sin of that. I'll take it all upon myself. Why? So that way you can forgive each other. So you can love each other. So that you don't have to get in a little camp and say, we're going to pay you back. We're going to pay you back. Listen, Jesus said, there's nothing to pay. I did it all. I took all the punishment for it so that you can do nothing but render love to each other. And you don't have to pay each other back. This is the idea. He says he created in one into a brand new unity, past identity separated in what he's done. Now, let me just say this. That does not mean, please don't misunderstand me, that does not mean that we need to forsake or disregard our uniqueness by God's design. That does not mean that the Jews are not still the Jews because the Jews are still the Jews. They're not the church. They are God's chosen people with plans and promises and a national identity. It does not mean that we have to set aside our wonderful diversities that God's allowed among us. We should respect and enjoy the variations. God's created us with a lot of variety in this world. We look differently. We have different cultures and societies and nationalities. However, those things should never become dividing lines. They should never be barriers that we allow or we erect ourselves to hinder fellowship and unity. And in the church, in the church, we should never ever segregate or behave in ways because of differences or so forth in the way that our sinful world does. This should be the one place on this planet where we should represent diversity and maintain unity at the same time. Because we understand these things. There should be in the church a family where we set aside all other identities and views. We may hold different views, we may have different cultures, but we, we appreciate those things, but we realize we're spiritual family first. This is why he says in verse 16 there that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. That word reconcile means to clear the path of obstacles. 
That's what reconcile means. To clear the path of obstacles. That's what God did so we could have a relationship with him. And that's what God wants to do between people. Part of the reason Jesus suffered and died was to clear the path of obstacles in relationships. Sometimes those obstacles are in relationships because of different groups and parties and perspectives and, again, things that have developed in our attitudes toward certain people groups. Sometimes there are obstacles that develop relationally. Why? Because in relationships we hurt each other, we, defend each, we offend each other, we disappoint one another, and all of a sudden we begin to generate hostility, the natural result, and then we fail to relationally deal with those things biblically the way God has intended us to. The church and Christians, listen, we're not immune to cancer and we're not immune to conflict. In your marriage, in your family, among the church, the body, we're not immune to these things. The difference is, is we have illumination how to deal with them properly, how to resolve them. How to look to the word love and forgiveness and have supernatural empowerment to let love cover a multitude of sins and how to work through things and how to follow the scripture's instructions that when we're offended, we don't pout and say, well, when they come and say they're sorry. No, that you initiate and go to them. Well, I understand hurt people don't do that. No, biblical people do that. People who say the scripture is God's authority and so however God says unto him, I'm to learn how to reconcile and work through issues when they arise, and they do, that God's authority is the way to deal with things and that we embrace that and we carry those things out so that we, like Jesus wants us to, reconcile. We clear away the obstacles. We need to reconcile relationally with humility and make an effort towards those things in our lives. Remember, Paul's going to say in Ephesians 4, read it later, that things like bitterness and wrath and, and these, they shouldn't exist in the life of Christian. We, sh- we should deal with these things. They need to be addressed before the Lord. The body of Christ in the church should be the one place, the one place where these things are practiced and experienced and can be found. It doesn't mean there's not going to be challenges, but we should certainly offer what the world doesn't. And we should be doing what the world does not do. So Paul says, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and to you who were near. So again, this is what he proclaimed, peace. We should be proclaiming the same. And then he concludes saying, for though or through him, excuse me, we both have access by one spirit to the same Father. Again, notice, there's another verse that references the Trinity. In verse 18, you have God the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have a reference to Jesus and what happened through Him. And the emphasis there is that we all now have access, equal access, equal access to God. Romans 5 says we have peace with God through Jesus Christ that we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And what does the word access mean? Permission, freedom, ability to be able to approach someone, to come into someone's presence. That word that he uses, access, there in the Greek speaks of how they would obtain a privilege to have a special meeting with a king, someone of great authority. And the Bible's saying, this is what we have through Christ, access to the Almighty God, equal access. Every person has the same access That's why Hebrews says we should come confidently, boldly to the throne of grace 
that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Access. What an incredible benefit God has given equally to every person in this room, to any person whose faith is in Jesus Christ, access to freely come and to be freely received equally like every other person. You know, my children understand access. They, from the time that they were born, because of the relationship dynamic, they understand access. That they have access. They don't have to work for access. They don't have to ask for access. They have access. You know, I could be talking to somebody, you know, giving counseling, or just, when, especially when the kids were little. and they, didn't, they would just barge right up. They didn't care. If your world was falling apart, that didn't matter. They wanted to talk to their dad. They understood access. And we, with childlike faith, should understand access and think who we have access to, to God. It says we should some come confidently that we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This morning, do you need mercy for your failures? Do you need grace to help for your time of need? You have direct access to come to God because of what Jesus has done in his great sacrifice. Let's stand. Let's pray together.